go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you rejoicing that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That we are not here because of our own good works. We're not here because of our own righteousness. We're not here because of any other thing that's within us or comes from us. But we're here because of your gracious mercy on us. Father, we desire to be your church, to proclaim and to live the truth of Christ. Father, we desire to be obedient to you. We desire to understand your wisdom in all areas. Father, we look today at dealing with unrepentant sin. Father, we ask you to help us to be repenters. We're not sinless. We acknowledge that before you. But Lord, help us when we do sin to repent, to run to the cross, to find forgiveness, to find power, to find strength. Father, we pray you continue to sanctify us and make us more into the image of your Son. Father, we pray that you give us instruction today on how to deal with unrepentant sin in the body, how you want it to be done. Father, we pray that you teach us by your spirit. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to be looking at God's cure for unrepentant sin in the church. You know, I've learned in my life as a parent and as a child that I don't like discipline. No one really, we all talk about how great it is to be disciplined and to be all this and that. None of us really enjoy that. Uh, Discipline is difficult if we're on the receiving end. Discipline is difficult if we're on the giving end. And I remember times in in my life as a young parent dealing with our children and as you were applying the rod, them screaming things like, you're killing me, or you don't love me. And so we understand that it's not pleasant uh, to be on the receiving end. It's not pleasant on the giving end either. And sometimes the whole household can be turned upside down with the discipline of one person who's not being repentant. And we've all experienced that, if we'll be honest. And the same thing is true in the church, that when someone gets tangled up in sin to the point that they will not repent of it, as we talked about last week with Alistair Begg, it requires that the church do something to help. And it may not be pretty, and it may be messy, and it may be painful, not only for the person involved, but for all involved, But it's important for us to understand that God calls us to the ministry of restoration. It's important that we understand that. And the reason, if you poll a lot of pastors, the reason they never do church discipline is because it is painful. 
Uh, they end up being blamed for the situation or it ends up taking people out of the church. It, it becomes a very messy situation. So they choose rather just to go, okay, well, we hope that that situation kind of goes okay and hope it all works out. Hope it's going to be all right. And the problem with sin is sin doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. Either we repent of it or we come to a point of repenting of it or we have to do something else that Paul's going to talk about today in that. And the desire of the elders is to help us to think biblically about this important issue. It's a mark of a church that we deal with this one because we are the bride of Christ. We're a local expression of that. We've been redeemed with the blood of Christ. And his desire for us is holiness. And we're all on the road to holiness, progressing at some pace, some faster than others, but we're all should be on that road to holiness. And that's his desire as that as his body that we proclaim the truth and that we live the truth. To proclaim and live the truth. Timothy was told by Paul, make sure you watch your life and your doctrine closely. It doesn't do a person good to proclaim truth and not live truth. It doesn't do a church any good to proclaim all the truth of the Bible and yet to allow unrepentant sin to run rampant through its body. We are called to have to deal with that. A good definition here, the church's mission is to proclaim the truth both to those inside and outside of her fellowship, to live the truth, and to help other believers in her body live the truth through discipleship and, when necessary, discipline. Discipleship and discipline. Paul writes to the Corinthians, the the city of Corinth was a wicked place. And sexual immorality was rampant in that place. And this church had people in their body, we read in 1 Corinthians 6, who had, been, who had been immoral, homosexual, the whole list. And he said, and such were some of you. But you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been redeemed by Christ. So this church had people within it that were working through the process of putting off the old and putting on the new. And as we read this letter, Paul reminds us, I've already written you one letter, which we don't have, in which he warned them to avoid immoral people. And he comes to clarify that in this passage to say, listen, I'm not talking about those out in the world. I'm talking about those in your body. Those who name the name of Jesus and are living immoral, you are going to have to handle them a certain way. This chapter is not written to the immoral man who has his father's wife. Paul doesn't address him. Who does Paul address? He addresses the church. And he calls the church to respond to this particular situation. Let's look at the cancer of unrepentant sin. Sin has one destination. And that is hell. It's destruction in hell. That is its destination. By God's grace, we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. But we need to understand that all sin, left and watered and nurtured, 
is going to carry us that direction. It is a cancer. Recently, I had um, a little growth on my face, and uh, my wife was concerned about it, of course, with me. No problem at all. There's nothing to this issue whatsoever. It's not a problem, and I'm over here trying to put stuff on to make sure it doesn't look bad. And so I go to the dermatologist, and he looks at it and goes, yep, I think that might be a basal cell cancer. I'm going, oh, great. It's good to hear. And um, so he said, I'll have to take a biopsy. I'm like, what is that? So he pulls out a razor blade. He starts cutting on me. I'm like, that didn't feel very good. He ran the test, and it, it was a basal cell cancer, which is a very slow-growing It's not like melanoma. So I scheduled an appointment with a mole surgeon who was to make me look beautiful once more after they had all these holes in me. I'm not sure how successful that was. But uh, so he sits down with me and he explains to me. Now, he said, you know, I don't know how long this has been going on at all. I don't know how long I've let this thing sit here and do this. I can't remember. I don't want to remember. And I sure don't want to tell them how long it's been since this thing started growing. And so he's getting ready to do a procedure on me, but he explains just in passing the possible dangers. And he says, now, if we have to go pretty deep to get this out, uh, we could hit a nerve. And if we hit a nerve, then you have no more expression on your face. <laughs> like, wow, isn't that wonderful? I'm like, Lori, <laughs> help. Oh, do not be anxious about anything, but everything about prayer and petition with Thanksgiving, present your request to God. Oh, Lord, help it not be too, too shallow. I mean, make it shallow. So, so this is what he did. So uh, he explained that to me. I'm like, I was just kind of whistling coming into this thing, thinking it was going to be taken care of. So he starts working. This is what he did. He would take a tiny little sliver, and he would just cut one more pl- on, on that same spot he would cut. He would freeze it. Then he would examine it. If he saw any kind of cancerous cells in there, he would keep cutting Thank the Lord, there was only one more time he had to do a little cutting. But he was very meticulous on where it was. He was very concerned that he got every bit of it. Sin is like cancer, an aggressive cancer. And it will continue to take over a person's life if it's not removed. It will also spread in a body to the point that it can destroy a body. When I was a headmaster of a private Christian school, we rented a church building that had a few little few uh, people of the congregation still left. This church, 10 to 15 years ago, was a thriving church of 800. This place was packed with people. Now there was a little remnant of older people, maybe 15 to 20, that were part of this church. What had happened? a pastor had committed an immorality with a secretary. And then another pastor came in and did the same thing. And now there is no church. Unrepentant sin that's not dealt with will not only destroy the person, but it will spread throughout the body to the point that there no longer is a body. So Paul's concern here is twofold in this passage. One, he wants to restore the brother. And number two is he wants to protect the body from the spread of that sin. 
This sin was of the kind that wasn't even acceptable among the Gentiles. Uh, it was probably known not only in the church, but in the, in the community as well. It was incest. Deuteronomy 22 warns about that in verse 30. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Leviticus 18.29. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who does them shall be cut off from among their people. And when they said cut off, they meant put him to death. The Bible says he has his father's wife. That, that is a present tense verb, which means this is an activity that has been going on and is continuing to go on within this body. It also could carry the idea that they actually had gotten married. Now, the problem with the church was, Paul says, you should have mourned about this. Here's a man in deep sin. There should have been mourning there. He says, in reality, you are arrogant. Why are you arrogant? Well, they could have been arrogant because they felt that they had freedom in Christ and they misunderstood that freedom in Christ doesn't mean you're free from the law of God, that you need to obey God's word in his moral declarations. Or they could have just thought they were being a loving congregation and not being judgmental. Remember, do not judge lest you be judged. And so their view of love was, we'll just let this go on and look how, look how, Look how um, laid back we are about this. Look how tolerant we are of this. You realize the society we live in is exactly this way, don't we? We have no stomach for child training. We sure have no stomach for church discipline. And anybody who would declare that we're living in sin would be seen as harsh and unloving. So our whole culture just sings this song over and over and over. But it's interesting that our culture still understands sin, don't they? You watch Tiger Woods' situation with his multiple affairs and his wife. And no one says, hey, that was a good thing going on there. He was just having his freedom of expression. So even the world, even though they will want people to have freedom in these areas, they still realize that this stuff is wickedness. Paul's admonition is to mourn. So the first step for us, when we find in our church, first we find in our own lives, if we're unrepentant, we need to mourn over our sin. We talked about this last week in the Lord's Supper and begin to seek God to give us godly sorrow, which leads to godly repentance. When we discover that in our body, we need to mourn. We need to grieve over what's going on. We need to grieve that a brother or sister is entangled in a sin to the point that they want to hang on to it, that they don't want to let it go. This is not the time to say, I told you so. This is not the time to say, I can't believe they did that. Because if you do that, you're standing on the very edge of a slippery slope, according to Galatians 6. Galatians 6 says, you who are spiritual, restore the one and do it with gentleness, lest you too be what? Tempted. When we're restoring somebody who's repentant, we need to be laying low in our own view of ourself, looking at the cross of Christ, approaching them with gentleness and respect, mourning over what they have done. Because they need to be set free from this, from this cancer that has taken over them. John MacArthur says, a church that does not mourn over sin, especially sin within its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. 
if we're not shocked by sin, unrepentant sin, we are much farther gone than we realize. In Revelation 2, 19 and 20, um, John writes this letter. Um, John writes in the letter to the church at Thyatira. He says, I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. So look at the good things they have going on there. They have faith and love and service and they have patient endurance and they're doing works for God. There's a problem though. It says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. God wants holiness. But we have a great facility and we have a great outreach to the community and we had a lot of love and fellowship. God says, I want holiness. It's not one or the other. It's you are to serve and to reach out and to grow and disciple and you are to what? Deal with sin in your body. God is clear that we are not to tolerate sin in our own lives or in the life of the church. This is why it's important for us to deal with our own sin. If we're over here hiding sin in our own life and then we come to deal with somebody else who has sin in their life, we're being a hypocrite. And a lot of us won't do that anyway. So we need to be ruthless with our own sin in our own lives so that we'll be able to be real and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need to look to myself first as I deal with my brother or sister who's caught in sin. Why exercise church discipline? 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8, he says, do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, for those of us who cook, I'm not one of those who cook, but I pretend to be a cook. Um, we know that a little leaven put into dough after it's stirred around a little bit, it completely permeates the loaf. Leaven represents influence. It spreads. Unrepentant sin is going to spread. It's not going to stay isolated in this area. The concern of the doctor with this was it was going to spread. The concern with cancer, it will spread. It's not just going to sit there. It's going to continue to move and spread. So here's the challenge. If you're in close fellowship with a so-called Christian, and they've, they, this means they've claimed they're a Christian, who is in open rebellion against God, you will be drawn into sin yourself. Paul is very concerned about this person and what he's going to do to the body. The little leaven will leaven the whole lump. In Israel, they would take a little bit of dough that was left over from a batch. They'd put it in some water and let it grow. When they made a new batch for bread, they would take that, drop it in, stir it up. It would spread throughout the loaf. It would grow. Leaven does not sit still. It moves. If you are in close fellowship with a so-called Christian who is teaching a false gospel, you're in grave danger of believing a false gospel that will send you to hell. Alexander Pope wrote this, vice is a monster of so frightful mane 
as to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. We first endure it, then there's pity, and then we what? Grasp it. Have you noticed the homosexual agenda in our country? At first, people were shocked and outraged. Then they endured it. Now they not only pity it, they what? They embrace it. And they will do that for whatever sin, no matter how horrible the sin is, there'll be a majority who will endure, pity, and what? Embrace. This is why Paul's concerned about getting this unrepentant sinner out of the church. We remember that our sin affects the body. Your sin and my sin affects the body. We remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament. They were to capture Jericho. They were to take nothing. And Achan said, what's it going to hurt to grab a robe and a silver wedge and a few things like this? It brought defeat for the Israeli army. And eventually, God pointed this man out to the body. And they removed him and his household. And they stoned them to death. Sin affects us. Nobody saw it. Sin's not affecting anybody. Yes, it does. Because we are woven together. That's like saying a wound on my finger doesn't affect the rest of me. Or just because I have a bad liver means that the rest of me is all right. We are a body. The Bible calls us the body of Christ. And we are interconnected by the grace of God and by the spirit of God. And so what you do and how you live and how you deal with your sin affects those closest to you first, but it affects everyone around. That's what Paul is saying here. We're not, we're not, the, the American mantra is we're all individuals. We don't affect anybody else. And we can all just pursue our own happiness. The Bible says, and that's not true. That's not true at all. Certain diseases require quarantine to prevent others from being infected. And we've learned that with um, a dear family in our church who has children with, with whooping cough. They had to be isolated so that it didn't spread. Notice here in verse uh, chapter 5, he says, um, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So in the middle of all this about the old leaven and the new leaven, he mentions Christ. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ was what? Holy. He was without sin. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Just a little rabbit trail here for a second. How do we deal with sin? And how, do we, how do we take the power out of sin? The only way to do it is to focus on Christ. That is the way to do it. And his sacrifice. David Brainerd, who was missionary to the Indians, said this, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. And I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, who were his people? The Indians, the American Indians. I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as sure and inevitable fruit as the other. Christ crucified, what follows that? Holiness. Christ crucified, holiness follows. 
I find my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. This is why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to present Christ crucified because number one, it brings people from death to life and salvation. And it's the same cure for those within the body who are believers, focus on Christ and him crucified. Titus 2, 11 through 14 would be a great passage to memorize, a great passage for you to focus on. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ crucified. That is the gospel. And that is the power of God that will set you free from whatever sin you're struggling with. Christ crucified. And notice his mission that we will be a people purified for good works. The church that allows unrepentant sin to flourish will not be zealous for good works. It takes the heart out of that. And in Colossians 2, 20 through 3, 5, Paul goes into a discussion and he says, a lot of people with human principles say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And a lot of us have been raised to hear, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And we're not saying there shouldn't be a place to avoid certain things. But simply trying to avoid them without the heart being changed is useless. It is useless. In Colossians chapter 3, let's turn there right quick. He talks about the do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Verse 23 of chapter 2. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Don't do that, little Johnny. Don't go over there and do this. Don't go do that. He says it has no value. Notice what he says. But if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he goes on to tell them to put to death everything that's earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. How do we fight the fight against sin? Christ and him crucified. We focus on Christ. And what's the message? The first message is he loves us. That he loves us so much that he died for us. The second message is to take care of sin, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something to take care of sin. Both in your own life and in the life of the church. 
If you're here just because you enjoy fellowship and you're not ready to roll your sleeves up and, and be in a battle at times because of people with unrepentant sin, I can promise you it is going to cost us something. Cost Christ his life. He was crucified to take care of our sin. And we have to deal with that in our own life. And at times, as it becomes apparent, within the body of Christ. Getting rid of sin is costly. It is costly. He calls us to deny ourselves. What do you think that is? Saying no to sin and yes to Christ. No to immorality and yes to holiness. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. He calls us to do whatever it takes to help a brother who's caught in sin. Whatever it takes. And he's going to tell us what it's going to take in this passage. We are so tempted to overlook blatant sin because we just don't want to be bothered with it. We've got a busy schedule. We've got lives to live. Let's look at the surgery for unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice what Paul's goal was. His goal was this man's salvation. There's a lot of discussion on what it means to be delivered over to Satan. What does it mean for the destruction of the flesh? I think a real clear thing is this. God wants us to pull all the props out from under that person. They're not acting as a believer. They're tied up into sin, and we're to remove the props and support and fellowship. It's kind of like when you have a young man in your household who becomes so rebellious he won't follow any of the rules of the house, but he's eating three meals a day, and he's driving the car, and he's wearing all the clothes you bought him, and he's done all these things, but he is in full rebellion against you, Sometimes the remedy is say, guess what? There's the door. All support is being taken away from you because of your lifestyle. And let them deal with the reality of their sin. And so the church in the same way is to remove a brother who's so wrapped up in sin that he will not repent. Remove the presence of the, of the body. Remove the fellowship and the love and the support and the encouragement we still love them, but we remove all the supports. Because at this point, this man is self-satisfied. I'm doing wonderfully. Look at the love I have for this woman. And look what I'm doing here. And I'm so excited about it. I've shared it with the whole church. Then he needs to be lovingly, gently removed. So that all the props are taken out. So he gets to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Paul says the goal is that he would be, his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the goal here. When you're spanking your child, it's painful. There's lots of crying. There's weeping, gnashing of teeth. All that's going on while you're spanking your child. The goal is what? That they will learn to walk in godliness. Matthew eighteen seventeen. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If we have a person who's, who claims to be a Christian and is so tied to their sin they won't repent, Paul says, treat them as if they're an unbeliever. How do you treat an unbeliever? 
you don't treat them like they're a Christian. You don't invite them for the Sunday fellowship. They don't come over here to hear the sermon. And when you're with them, what do you do? You share the gospel with them and tell them they need to repent and turn to Christ. Here's a very encouraging thing in this passage. Christ walks with his church through disciplined situations. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, 4 says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and by, the Spirit, by my Spirit is present and the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's even more clear in Matthew 18, 20. Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, we've all had this passage taught to us. It says, let's all gather to pray. We get three together, we're going to have the Lord with us. That's not what this passage is teaching. This passage is teaching in the midst of church discipline, as two or three have agreed, this man, there's what? Two or three what? Witnesses? Two or three witnesses have agreed that this man is in sin, and the church has decided to carry out this action. As frightening as it is to have somebody removed from the church, He says, there am I with them. Christ walks among his church as they deal with unrepentant sin in the church. He promises to always be with us. Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. But here in Matthew 18, he promises to be with you. If you're doing it in his authority, with his guidelines, and with the spirit of Christ that you're supposed to have. There's a lot of stuff that passes for church discipline that's not church discipline. It's used as a tool by leaders to remove people they want to remove. They don't have this promise that Christ will be with them in the midst of it. Or that their authority is held in heaven and on earth. That's if we are following what he's asked us to do, if we're dealing with real sin, if we're dealing with unrepentant sin that has been dealt with on a multitude of levels and been prayed through and sought and beseeched and called back and called back and called back to come and they still will not turn, then they are to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh and, this, and, and Christ walks in our midst. He's with us in that. Why is he with us? Because he wants a pure bride. And he desires for this person to see who they really are. He wants them to see who they really are. The word deliver is a strong word, a judicial act of sentencing or a handing over for punishment. This is a very serious thing. This doesn't happen to people who sin every day. This is for people who are in unrepentant sin who will not repent. In a previous church, we had a lady in our church. She was growing in grace. She'd come out of kind of a rough background. And she was rejoicing in the Lord and enjoying fellowship in our church. And one day, an old boyfriend showed up. And he wooed her back. And even though we tried and begged her not to go back into that lifestyle, she moved in with him. 
and we had to deal with her according to this passage. And there were months and months we didn't hear from her. And I remember one day she showed up at church. She just came to the office. We were having meetings and staff and she showed up and she said, you know, I, I sure miss the church and I, I know I've sinned and I really want to come back. Um, she said, I knew I needed to change my life when I woke up in the morning out in the field and the sprinklers were on, hitting me in the face with water. And I realized <laughs> I need to come back to Christ. She went through the ringer, following after her flesh, this man. But the church responded appropriately in disciplining her in love. And she came back and was, was restored and joined, joined back into the fellowship of the church. It took a while. But the church has the responsibility to carry this out. You know, Paul's concern in this letter to the Corinthians was not with the immoral people of the world. His concern was with the immoral people who named the name of Jesus within the church. Paul saw the so-called immoral brother as more dangerous to the church than the immoral man in the world. I think that's important for us to catch that. The immoral brother in the church is more dangerous to your spiritual health than the immoral man in the world. I'm afraid that we can be guilty of getting this command of Paul backwards. We have seen the church become worldly, and in an attempt to correct that problem, we may have swung too far in the other direction. We can have such a concern of being contaminated by the world that we have withdrawn from interaction with those who need Christ who do not live like us, who do not have our convictions regarding um, education or discipleship or entertainment or music or dress, who have, a profane, who have profane thoughts, language, and lifestyle. If we're not careful, we may, have, we, may be, we may have allowed our own convictions to build a wall around us preventing us from doing the very work God has called us to do. We are to be salt and light. It's time for us to bring the salt and light of Christ into a sinful, hurting world. It's important for that. In this passage, discipline has two purposes. The first purpose is that the repentant brother may be saved in the day of the Lord, that he might, he, might be, he might have salvation. Either he already has it or to make sure that he does at the end of the game. Secondly, that the infectious disease of unrepentant sin might be quarantined to prevent its further spread in the body of Christ. Now, I read a book by um, Carl Laney, a, a very in-depth book on guidelines for church discipline. And they surveyed a lot of pastors and the general consensus was, of those who were actually removed from the church, they saw 50% of them return. 
this diagnosis is not a guarantee that the brother or the sister will return. But this is the best possible remedy for that. But in all those cases, if they remove the unrepentant brother, they protected the body from what? The aggressive sin of unrepentant sin. Of unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. These verbs that go with these words, immoral person, covetous, the understanding here is it's present tense. It's continuous action. These are people whose lifestyle is a drunkard or a swindler, a reviler, an idolater, an immoral person. Again, this is not a person who has a one-time slip and comes and repents. This is a person whose lifestyle, and sometimes you don't know what a person's lifestyle is until all of a sudden their sin pops up like a little iceberg out in the water. And you don't know how big this iceberg is. You don't know what's underneath it. And as you begin to deal with them, especially if they're unrepentant, you may find out you have quite an iceberg on your hands that was well underneath the surface and had been growing for years and had roots into everything. This admonition of Paul to not associate with a so-called brother is hard. This is hard. It runs against our nature. Our nature is if we just show them more love and more acceptance, they'll change. If we just love them a little more, they'll change. I've not seen that to be the case in situations. I've not seen it for people who are truly unrepentant in their sin. Paul deals with it in several categories. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, starting in verse 6. Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. Y'all better get busy. I mean, we're talking idleness here. And not in accordance with the tradition that you received from us. These were brothers who were maybe waiting for the return of Christ and decided to sell all their possessions and sit on the rooftop and wait for Christ to return. But they were living off of other brothers. Notice what Paul's commendation is. Keep away from him. Don't get near them. What? It's contagious. Notice where he says in verse 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. What's Paul's remedy for people who are in unrepentant sin? It's not to go have more fellowship with them. It's to confront them in love and their sin and to stay away from them. And it's really important that there's a real balance in there when we deal with people. We need to communicate that we love them and that we want them to follow Christ and that we are praying for them 
and were mourning over their sin. And that we would love to have fellowship with them. But because they have this sin that they're not willing to let go of, we're not going to be able to fellowship with them. And to know that as soon as they repent and let go of that sin, we will be running over to their house to embrace them and hold them and love them and rejoice that the prodigal son has returned. We will be doing that. But it's important. And sometimes in our zeal to make sure we remove somebody, we get harsh. We become judgmental. We begin, we begin to talk in pride and arrogance to them. And that is not church discipline. That is sin. It's just like you've always been told as parents, can you discipline your child without being angry? That's what we have to do as a church. We shouldn't be done out of anger or anything else. It should be done out of love and patience and humility as we look to our own sin first, as we deal with this brother or sister. He says here in 14, uh, not to uh, them be ashamed, then he finishes, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is not your time to diagnose whether they're a believer or unbeliever. Well, you're obviously an unbeliever. You're not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the Holy Spirit. This is the time to believe the best that we have a brother who's gotten tangled up in a sin and therefore we're calling him to repent. 2 Timothy 3.5 Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. He's talking about this whole list of people who are immoral but who have the appearance of godliness. But denies power, he says what? Avoid such people. There's nothing more dangerous than a person who has an outward form of godliness but is wicked to the core. And sometimes what happens in a church, we just live in life and stuff's going on and everybody's kind of watering their guard and take care of it. And all of a sudden, something pops up. And we begin to try to deal with it and confront them in love and see what's going on. All of a sudden, you know what happens? Sometimes <clears throat> the whole mask comes off. And you find out you've got a wolf on your hands. And they're bent on tearing up the whole church if they can. We don't know, we don't know who people are. We're not the Holy Spirit. And that's what's good about this is he tells us what to do, period, based upon outward action. We don't have to figure out what's going on in the heart. All we have to do is respond to the outward action. Isn't that comforting? Okay? Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Here's the situation of people who are not following the doctrine and he says what? Avoid them. So Paul's not just saying this in 1 Corinthians 5 and that's it. He has pretty much his pattern of dealing with people who were in either false living or false doctrine. 
who are claiming to be believers and who won't repent of that. We all make mistakes in doctrine. We all make mistakes in the way we live. The question is, are we repenting or are we not? If we're not repenting, that's a problem. We need help, okay? God's prescription is simple and straightforward. It does not require us to determine if they are a believer or unbeliever. The reality is that when a believer becomes entrapped in a sin, he is indistinguishable or can be indistinguishable from an unbeliever. If you have a brother who's trapped in immorality and it's got a grip on him and he's been nursing it for a while, it's really hard to distinguish between him and a a person of the world. We really don't know who we're dealing with. We're hopeful that it's just a brother who's what? Fallen into sin. That's our hope. But we don't know. Nor do we have to know. Because the criteria to deal with a person is this. Number one, do they claim to be a Christian? Number two, is the person unrepentant in their sin? If you meet those two criteria, then we need to deal with you in love. See how simple that is? Are they claiming to be a believer? Okay. But we went to them over and over and over again, they won't repent? Then we need to walk through Matthew 18. We need to confront and love and pray and not jump to a quick conclusion and pray some more and talk some more and call them to repent and pray some more and call them to repent with one witness, three witnesses, the whole church and pray. And even after the whole church appeals to them, if they still, if they still are determined to hang on to that sin, then according to 1 Corinthians 5, they have to be removed from the church for the saving of their what? Of their soul. That's the goal. The word associate means to mix with, to keep intimate, close fellowship with. A man named um, Jeske wrote a book called Discipling, or Discipling the Brother. This is what he says about avoidance, which is what we're talking about. Avoidance is that kind of circumspect relationship with an excommunicated individual which brings home to him the truth about his spiritual condition and does not permit him to escape into self-deception. There's, there are people who get into horrible sin, get bound up in it, and, but are absolutely sure they're a believer. Church discipline helps remove that self-deception and make it clear to them. It means refusing to pretend that a person is a Christian after he has ceased to act like one. That's why they're removed. We don't see, at this point, we see you as a tax collector and a sinner. We don't know what your spiritual condition is, but we do know how you're acting. It means respecting his decision and honestly treating him once more like a person of the world. Okay, if this is your choice and you're going to live in this, okay. But what do we preach? Christ and him crucified. Because, they're a person of the, because they view themselves as a person of the world, we're going to preach the gospel to them again, calling them to Christ and to repentance. 
just picture, if you would, that we're, we're all a community of faith here. We're all the body of Christ. We're all a flock. So just imagine that we all live together, okay? We all have these cute little condominiums around this beautiful lake, and all the condominiums connect together in a nice little circle. It's a beautiful, tranquil scene. And because we're out in the middle of nowhere, there's no fire department going to come help us out. So the requirement is that we're all part of the volunteer fire department. And we have a vested interest in this because all of our houses are connecting. Now, we're all responsible to be careful in our own house and to be careful how we use fire and to make sure that we leave the, don't leave the stove on and we don't leave the burner on and we don't have you know, candles burning near, near, near a curtain and all this and that. We have all these things we're supposed to be doing. So if we have a fire in our house, if it's a small one, we do what? We just put it out. But we all know that sometimes if we went to sleep at night and left the candle by the, by the curtain or something, we can wake up and the whole room is in flames. At that point, the volunteer fire department Everybody is all hands on deck, not only to save that person's condominium, but to what? To save your own, right? Because we're intimately connected. If it, if it goes to this condo, it's going to go to the next one. It's going to spread both ways, moving around the circle. And so... When we have a situation of unrepentant sin, as Bob said very well last week, all hands on deck. Now, it's dangerous fighting a fire. I've had friends die fighting a fire who were firefighters. And so being part of the volunteer fire department is dangerous. This is not just, we're not playing games here. We're talking people can lose their life. Now, there's not anyone who wouldn't welcome you to come help them put the fire out, right? Everyone welcomes somebody putting out the fire in their house to protect their property. Unfortunately, those who have been entangled in sin often aren't le are less welcoming of the volunteer sin-fighting department because they have grown to love their sin and have been blinded to the danger that they are in. It can be very challenging to try to rescue a person who does not want to be rescued. This is why we're having these series of meetings, at least one of the reasons. And so that we can all understand what God's word has to say about this. Because when you do find a person in unrepentant sin, it can be dangerous. It can be damaging. It can tear a church apart. And I'm not doing a ministerial exaggeration. We wish that everybody was as eager to have their fire put out in their house as they were to have their fire put out in their life. Amen? Wouldn't that be wonderful that when you show up, I'm so glad you guys have come. I've been in sin now for, you know, three months or six months. I'm so grateful y'all are here. 
uh, tell me what I need to do, I'm going to do it. Unfortunately, sin doesn't work that way. Sin gets control of a person's life. And they don't even see sometimes the need, the danger that is there. And what are you going to face when this happens? Here's just some things. You will be met or can be met with lying, deceptiveness, manipulation, slander, gossip, misinformation, and divisiveness. Again, what do we find in the garden when God showed up with Adam and Eve? All the fingers are going some other way, right? You deal with a person who's unrepentant, all of a sudden, the people who come to help are blamed. It's their fault. They're bearing false witness against me. I never did that. There's complete denial of sin. There goes share with other friends in the church. This is, can, can you believe that they're coming and visiting me about this thing? I didn't do this at all. I can't believe the case. That's the situation. They're going around telling everybody, and they're trying to do what? Get people on their side. And if they're really good, they can get a lot of people on their side. And all of a sudden, you have a church that's what? Divided. There's a lot more detail to talk about in this whole area of dealing with an unrepentant brother. We don't have time to do that today, just to introduce it. But it is, it is a situation. This, there's a reason pastors don't want to do discipline. There are reasons. They would rather hope that the person either moves away or that something happens or that all of a sudden God strikes them and they repent. I mean, they just hope something happens because in this situation... If it's not, even if it's handled rightly, you can lose families. Families would leave. So we really want to be of all the same mind on this. I can promise you that Bob, myself, and Tom, and Cody have no desire to do church discipline unless it's absolutely necessary. Would you say that's true? I mean, that's the last thing. We don't wake up in the morning. Who can we discipline today? <laughs> okay. I mean, mm-mm. no. Not at all. We love everyone here. And until we know otherwise, we are believing that you are pursuing Christ and following him in grace and are dealing with your sin, and are being repentant, and we're praying that for you, and we're praying that for us. But from the scripture we see, it does show up in the body, and that person needs to be loved and reached out to and confronted and loved and reached out to and confronted, and when we come to the point when they clearly let us know that I am going to stand here on this sin and I can do no other. I will do this, and there's nothing wrong with it. And why are you being so judgmental? Then, so you bring the first person, you bring two or three people. Again, what? We get, it gets bigger and bigger each time. Then the church comes. If still after the church themselves reach out to this person and appeal 
and beg them to repent and they don't, then 1 Corinthians 5, with the hope that they'll what? Be restored. Okay? It can be especially, this, this type of situation can be especially challenging for family and close friends of the unrepentant person because they're what? On the front lines. So when we have a situation in our church where a brother or sister is in unrepentant sin, we need to particularly pray for those who are nearest to them because that, they're going to be the people who interact with them on a regular basis and how they handle that. Years ago, we had a lady in our church, and um, she was a homeschooling mom of four or five kids, six kids, and um, there were some marriage problems going on. They were being counseled by the church staff, and she began to tell her friends, her Christian friends who weren't part of the church, that her husband had done X, Y, and Z, and therefore she needed to leave him. And so this man left for work one day, and all her friends came over and unloaded the house, took every stick of furniture that she thought was hers, and moved her to a place where he didn't even know where she was at. We tried to deal with her, um, and we found out that she had a relationship with another man that was beginning to grow, and we even sat down with him eyeball to eyeball and said, listen, do not get tangled up with this married woman. She has a husband. She has a family of six. This will not be good for your spiritual life. Do not do this. No matter what the admonition was, they end up marrying and blowing this family sky high. And they were disciplined and excommunicated. She was. He wasn't part of the church. That was 2003, 2004. In this last year, Her, one of her daughters was getting married and she was told um, you're not allowed to come to the wedding weeks later they come before the church her and her husband they stand before the church with the other husband over here and they confess their sin before God and there's reconciliation. The egg couldn't be, you know, put back in the, put back in the uh, shell. But repentance did come ten, ten years later. The reality is, we're not responsible for the results, are we? We're responsible to do what we're commanded to do by Scripture. Association does communicate acceptance. It does. The unrepentant desire to be accepted in their sinful lifestyle. Whatever message of repentance you've communicated with the lost, with your acceptance of them in social settings. So if you've communicated repent, but you're meeting with them in social settings, the message is lost. They desire acceptance. They're very clear. You need to accept what we're doing. This is okay. And we as the church have to say, according to scripture, it's not. We love you, we want to have fellowship with you, but we can't 
because you're living contrary to the gospel you claim to believe. It's very natural to want to reach out and love and embrace and hopefully they'll repent, but scripture's clear of how we deal with them. Second Corinthians two, five and eight, the good news is that this man came to repentance. In second Timothy, second Corinthians, we'll get the right book here in a minute. Second Corinthians chapter two, Paul says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but to some measure, but not to put it too severely to all of you. He's talking about this brother who was in unrepentant sin. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So the the excommunication of that brother was a punishment to him. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Church discipline worked in this situation. The brother was broken over his sin. He desired to be part of the fellowship again. And Paul says what? Reach out with your arms and love them. And embrace them. And receive them. And forgive them. That's the goal. That's the goal of this, is for restoration and to protect the holiness of the church. I pray that God would give us grace as we, as we deal with these things whenever they come to, come, to be, come to bear in our own church. That you would know that the heart of God is to restore. That the heart of your elders is to restore that the heart of the people here is to restore and love and cherish. All of us have had situations where we've been in unrepentant sin for a little season and we know how dangerous that is. And so may God give us grace that we pray every day for each other. We pray for this body that we deal with our own household and our our own lives and deal with our own sin. And if God forbid things come up in the church that we have to deal with, that we would deal with it as Christ did, walking among his people. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and this is not an easy passage. This is not an easy teaching. But Father, your ways are higher than our ways, and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And you know what's best for your people, what's best for your church. Father, I pray that we would all be sobered to deal with our sin, to keep the fires out of our own house, to prevent sin from growing and flourishing in our own household. And Father, when called upon, that we would be ready in humility and gentleness and patience and endurance to love someone to help them be untangled from unrepentant sin. Father, we, uh, we desire to be a holy church. We're all sinful, we know that. But a church that will at least uphold your standard 
a church of, of hopefully repenting believers who will bring glory to you. Father, I pray you deepen our love for each other. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to believe the best and to trust you and to walk in your ways. Father, we pray for protection for this flock. Father, I pray that you protect this flock and give us grace for whatever you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.